1 Corinthians chapter 1, we'll be reading from verse 18 to the end of the chapter. The little subheading for our reading, which is uninspired, just a heading, is Christ the wisdom and the power of God. Let us hear the word of God. For the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise, the intelligence of the intelligent I will frustrate. Where is the wise man? Where is the scholar? Where is the philosopher of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God, the world through its wisdom did not know him, God was pleased through the foolishness of what was preached to save those who believe. Jews demand miraculous signs and Greeks look for wisdom. But we preach Christ crucified. A stumbling block to Jews and foolishness to Gentiles, but to those whom God has called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ the power of God and the wisdom of God. For the foolishness of God is wiser than man's wisdom, and the weakness of God is stronger than man's strength. Brothers, think of what you were when you were called. Not many of you were wise by human standards. Not many influential. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. God chose the weak things of the world to shame the strong. He chose the lowly things of the world and the despised things and the things that are not to nullify the things that are so that no one may boast before him. It is because of him that you are in Christ who has become for us the wisdom of God. That is our righteousness, holiness, and redemption. Therefore, it is written, let him who boasts, boast in the Lord. And we trust that God will bless the reading of his word to us here this evening. Christ the power and the wisdom of God. In her world tour called Confessions, Madonna appeared at a stadium beside the Vatican and she sang a song strapped to a cross and wearing a mocking crown of thorns. She united Christians, Muslims, and Jews in their condemnation and her condemnation of this deeply offensive act. Although controversial and outrageous as it was, it was a million times less controversial than the cross of Calvary 2,000 years ago. Actually, Madonna made uh, she made the cross, she gave it some glitz. She gave it glitz by taking away its true revulsion to which God stooped in redeeming a people unto himself in Christ Jesus. Part of our problem today 
is that we have become so familiarized, so sanitized to the Christian story that it is now difficult to, for us to grasp how utterly outrageous, how utterly controversial and the sheer madness of the message of a crucified Christ really was 2,000 years ago and still is today. The world of Jesus' day comprised Jews and Greeks. Both thought the message of the cross was absolutely bankrupt of God. Paul writes, verse 22, Jews demand miracles, uh, miraculous signs, and Greeks look for wisdom. Another found what they were looking for in the cross of Calvary. The Jews demanded signs. When Jesus lived on earth, he performed many miracles in the name, power, and in the authority of God. His miracles authenticated who he was, that he was Jesus Messiah. He was the Christ. The Jews knew that Messiah would come in power and might. They expected demonstrations of extraordinary power from Messiah. But there was something cold and sinister about the demand for miracles from the Jews. They clamored for the miraculous so that they could assess Jesus. So that they could run their theological eye over Jesus and to see if he was the genuine article. Is he or was he Messiah? Was he the one who would save God's people? But they were stopped dead in their tracks by a cross. They thought Messiah would be a Mark II battle hero like the great royal ancestor King David and that he would rid Palestine of its Roman oppressors. They were occupying their land. And rich in the Old Testament scriptures as these Jews were, they could not shift their thinking from a warlike conquering Messiah. And the message Paul preached of a crucified Christ it was a million miles away from their understanding of Messiah. The cross, the cross was a place of shame. It spoke of weakness, not power. It spoke of defeat, not victory. It spoke of humiliation and not glory. Who ever heard of a crucified Messiah? Furthermore, Deuteronomy 21, 23 reads, anyone who is hung on a tree is under God's curse. How could Messiah be under the curse of God? For a Jew, this was incomprehensible. So they looked for a sign to convince them that Jesus was the deliverer, Messiah. But they couldn't see God answering their hope of a deliverer through the cross. And so the Jews, they stumbled. They stumbled at the cross. And in doing so, they missed the greatest Miracle of all, the death and resurrection of Messiah.
the shame and the humility of the cross and a crucified Christ was God's ultimate miracle of power and wisdom being demonstrated before all on the cross of Calvary. There are good people and there are lovely people even today the lantern breadth of our land and our churches who like the Jews they stumble at the cross. They hear the gospel read and preached every Sunday and they get their morality from it. They get their morality from it by dutifully trying to follow the example of Jesus, thus hoping that they will make the grade with God apart from the cross. They'll make it on their own goodness, on their own morality. They'll make it with God apart from the cross. Others suppress the truth of the gospel and they will not allow it to address their lives. They simply keep a check and will not allow the gospel to address their lives. They soften sin. They shift the blame. They refuse to let the truth of God search their lives and expose them to who they really are and to who God really is. Some say, oh, let's talk about blood sacrifice. Too much. Too offensive. And so the cross has no appeal for them. The story is told about a young minister fresh into his first charge. And there's no liberal professor in the same church that he has come and joined. After preaching one of his early sermons in which he preached upon the cross, the young minister picked up the courage to go and speak with the old professor about his sermon. What did you think of my sermon? The old professor said, the message of the cross is very crude. It's very crude. The young minister thought for a moment and replied, Sir, I know the message is very crude, but it's very true. The message of the cross may seem crude and out of sync with modern-day sensibilities, but it is God's message. It is God's message of power, his power and his wisdom to a world that is lost in sin. The cross is dismissed as impotent. It is dismissed as foolish. It is written off by the ways of this world. It is written off as an archaic and a failed message. But the cross is the power and the wisdom of God. It is the power and the wisdom of God to deal with sin, its guilt, and its power. I have often thought the heaviest load in the whole world to carry is the weight of guilt. It feels so wrong. It feels so deep. It feels so unsurable. And there's no hiding place from it. God is personal. He made a moral universe, and when we break that moral order, like striking neighbor or telling a lie, 
we not only sin against our neighbor, but we sin against God. We miss the real evil of sin when we miss it as rebellion against God, our Creator, who made us with design and purpose to glorify Him by enjoying Him forever. I remember one day visiting two girls in a rehab unit for alcohol and drug abuse. They had just come from watching a, 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 a film, and actually another film about how badly children were affected uh, from beatings and anger and inability to parent properly arising from addictions. I asked them, what do you do after you've watched the films? They said, we go back to the dorm and we lie riddled in guilt. As we talked, a young girl from Scotland joined us and she joined in this conversation and a little later on in the conversation, she pulled up both sleeves and they were severely slashed. And she held her arms out and said, that's me trying to pay for the guilt that I go through. I said to her, I know what that feels like. And then I explained to her the way of the cross, that Jesus died to take away the penalty and the guilt of our sin and to reconcile us to God. Here's what she said. John, that is the first time Christianity has ever made sense to me. Jesus deals with our guilt our shame and our sin. In our attempts to get rid of guilt like Adam in the garden, we try to pass the blame. Adam said to God, it was Eve made me sin. Eve said, it was the devil made me sin. Today we may blame a dominant mother, a weak father, a non-loving wife, a non-caring husband. We may blame bad company. And in a fallen world, these can be powerful effects and influences for ill and evil. But there is a me, a me below the blaming, a me made in the image of God that knows only that we can live well and we can live fully when we know the truth about ourselves and we know the truth about who God is. We must take responsibility for our own actions. And we must come to that place that says, I am guilty. I need your cleansing. I need your healing, Lord Jesus. I need your healing love and your forgiveness. Isaiah 53, 10 reads, Yet it was the Lord's will to crush him, Jesus Messiah, and cause him, Jesus Messiah, to suffer. And though the Lord makes his life a guilt offering, Calvary is the altar. Jesus is our guilt offering. Jesus pays the great debt of sin by bearing the full punishment in his own body. 
His death for our sin become our death to sin. His resurrection, became, his resurrection became our resurrection to new and eternal life. Christ has dealt. He has dealt fully and wholly with our guilt and our sin, and we are free from its power to rule and condemn us. Owning our own sin and confession and repentance is not a place to be feared. It will open up hidden wounds that are deep. It will expose wounds that are deep. But God knows those sins already. Repentance is not for God's benefit. It's for ours. For repentance that opens us up to God is a place of forgiveness. It is a place of love. It is a place of mercy. It is a place of healing. And we live every day of our lives from this flow of God's love and forgiveness that comes to us in a crucified and resurrected Christ. We must examine ourselves. We are told every time we come to the Lord's table to examine ourselves. We have to take responsibility for our sin. But we must not stand fixed in that place. Even the devil would want us to stay fixed in the place of self-examination. Always self-examination. Always looking inward. The more inward we look, the more morbid we become. The more introvert we become. No, we must look to Christ. One of the best pieces of advice I ever read in my whole life came from Robert Murray McShane. Here's what McShane says. For every one look you take at yourself, take ten at Christ. For every one look you take at yourself, take ten at Christ. We must examine ourselves, but we must know there is no answer for guilt found within ourselves. No, we look to Christ, our Lord and our Savior. And for every look we take at ourselves, every look we take to examine ourselves, we take 10, we take 20, we take 100 at Christ and see who he is and what he has done for us. We must own Jesus by faith and bathe in his love and healing and forgiveness by faith. Then there were the Greeks. They simply thought the cross is foolishness. It is bizarre to believe in the cross. The Greeks, they loved and cherished wisdom. They lived with an intellectual pride that worked from love and logic, from debate and reasoning and persuasive, uh, persuasive, persuasive uh, rhetoric. They argued if God must be known, he must be knowable through reason and through weight of argument. The cross was intellectual suicide for the Greeks. But the problem with the Greeks was that their God was only as big as their minds would allow him to be. The Greeks utterly failed to grasp the God of Scripture. 
Their God was too small. Their God was too removed and too impersonal. They missed the God who meets us in love and mercy and truth and in grace. There is simply no human logic in all the world that could fathom the outrageous madness of the gospel of a crucified Christ. And so the Greeks reasoned. How could any sensible person see God saving a people through one who was violently wronged? He was misread, he was betrayed, and he was given to die such a barbaric, torturous death, especially when he had the power to destroy those who were destroying him. God for them was totally undone by the cross. The Greeks thought to know God by reason and debate. But we can only know a God who is intimate, who is personal, who is our Father in heaven, when we know him by faith in Jesus Christ, the one who died on the cross bearing the wrath of God against our sin. Paul then adds, not many of you, not many of you were wise according to worldly, uh, worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose, God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are, so that no human wisdom may boast before God. The cross was such a brutal and such a shameful death that Roman citizens would never put a Roman to death on it. It would always have been Gentiles. Polite Roman society, they never, ever, ever spoke of the cross. It was so despised and so cruel. But God used what is despised. God used what was counted as nothing to refute and destroy what the world counted as important and something. Paul extends the despised and loneliness of the work of the cross. He extends it to those who are being called by God. God calls a people of low esteem. He calls a people of low esteem to display the triumph and the power and the wisdom of God in the cross of Calvary. Paul, in effect, is saying something like this, and it's slightly paraphrased, the verse that I just read. Not many of you were the brightest and the best. Some were. Not many of you were influential. Some were. Not many of you from high society families. Some were. God deliberately chose men and women that the culture overlooks, that the culture exploits, that the culture thinks as nobody. God chooses such to expose the hollow and the foolish wisdom of the somebodies, of the wise. There are people with doctorates and massive intellects who are applauded by the intellectual community. 
and they cannot even begin to conceive of how God saves a people through the cross. And there are people who are simple, they live simple, ordinary lives, and they bow in wonder, and they bow in awe, and they bow in thanksgiving to what God has done for them in and through the cross of Calvary. They grasp by faith what the intellects of the world cannot grasp with all their combined learning and wisdom. The simple act of faith in Christ Jesus, it refutes the egos and the intellects of proof-demanding sign-seekers and the wisest of the wise who cannot fathom the cross as the power and the wisdom of God. In God's sovereign freedom, he chooses people in such a way as to nullify human pride. At the cross, God was opening up and he was operating on a plane that was infinitely higher, higher than the thoughts and the ways of man. He summoned up dimensions of power and love and wisdom that Jews and Greeks had not even scratched the surface of in their collective brilliant but totally inadequate little minds. At Calvary, God was denouncing every human effort at trying to reach him apart from the cross of Calvary. He was saying to a world that was filled with wisdom and sign-seekers, all the very best ways of trying to get right with me apart from the cross is a rejection of true knowledge of God and the true knowledge of salvation. All your wisdom is nothing, Paul says. And what you count as not powerless and foolish, the cross, is actually the manifest wisdom and power of God. Then verse 30 finishes. And because of him, you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness, and sanctification, and redemption. Christ is Lord and Savior. He is our wisdom from God. He who is our wisdom from God is our righteousness. Paul writes in 2 Corinthians 5, 21, God made him who knew no sin to become sin for us. Why? That we may become the righteousness of God. Him who is the wisdom of God to us is also our righteousness. And Paul goes on to say, and Christ is our sanctification. Once we have seen Jesus as our wisdom in the cross, once we have been counted righteous with his righteousness, he becomes the power with which we are sanctified. Christ crucified is our wisdom in whom we stand righteous before God. And as we stand in Christ righteous before God, then we start our righteous walk 
in our sanctification. Closing sentence. We who own Jesus as Lord and Savior, we are blood-washed. We are cleansed. And we are kept to eternal life in and through him who is the power and the wisdom of God, even Jesus. There is nothing else needed beyond the giving of God for us in Christ Jesus. He has given us everything we need for life and living. This Jesus is the power and the wisdom of a giving God. And Paul ends by saying, He is our redemption. We are saved, redeemed by God to God in and through Christ and Christ alone. You must, you must, you must see that Christ alone is the giving of God for us. We who need a Savior, the giving of God for us is Christ Jesus. Let us pray. Father, help us, we pray, to see and to rely utterly and totally in that we can't find theologies that outweigh the wonder, the beauty, and the joy of the giving of God and his Son, Christ Jesus. May we know with deep rest and deep joy this Jesus, who is the giving of God. We ask us in the Savior's name. Amen.